Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. We'll have the latest on the vaccine effort in both New Jersey and New York, as well as a personal story from one of the doctors here in Newark. I lost my father to this pandemic. So imagine I'm working in one hospital and four miles away, my father is fighting for his life in another hospital and I can't physically see him. New Jersey is pushing for reforms in policing to prevent another murder like George Floyd's. So we don't have that video from Minneapolis happen in New Jersey where three cops stood by while a fourth killed somebody. I'll chat with Bloomfield College President Dr. Marquita Evans about the Derek Chauvin verdict. It was still that uncertainty that maybe He's not going to be found guilty. And film critic Harlan Jacobson gives us a preview of the 93rd Academy Awards. I don't know how the Academy just doesn't choose them all. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Walk-ins are now being accepted at any New York City-run coronavirus vaccine site. We get the latest from WBGO Scott Pringle. Mayor de Blasio says the city's pilot program for walk-ins 50 and older was successful. So now the city is letting anyone show up to the vaccine site without a previously scheduled appointment. You can just walk up and get vaccinated. If you're 16 years old or older for the sites using Pfizer, 18 years old and older at the sites using Moderna. Meanwhile, de Blasio notes the coronavirus positivity rate is roughly 4.5%, the lowest it's been in a long time. That number is great and declining, and we want to keep it declining. Hospitalizations and cases are dropping as well. Scott Pringle, WBGO News. While there's still uncertainty over the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that has been in pause mode for more than a week and a half now, three area doctors took part this week in a COVID-19 vaccine Q&A as part of a virtual community program hosted by Newark News and Story Collaborative, WBGO, and Free Press. The panel included Dr. Mark Wade, the City of Newark's Director of Community Health and Wellness, Dr. Shreef Elnahal, President and CEO of University Hospital in Newark, and Dr. Chris Purnell, a public health doctor and administrator at University Hospital in Newark. All strongly recommended people get the vaccine, and all agree that there will most likely be a need for booster shots in the future. Dr. Purnell explained why she had to get involved in the clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccine. Last spring, last March, and last April, the epicenter of this unprecedented public health crisis and pandemic landed on New Jersey and New York. It didn't only land on New Jersey, it landed on Newark. It didn't only land on Newark, it landed on me. I lost my father to this pandemic. So imagine I'm working in one hospital and four miles away, my father is fighting for his life in another hospital and I can't physically see him. So I needed a way to pay forward my father's legacy. And my father was a a proud Black man, um, and he believed in Black excellence. And my father overcame the Jim Crow South um, and was self-taught in his career. My father never went to college, uh, but he ended up being a researcher, working at the famous Bell Labs. He started cutting grass. And I think that's so important for our community to hear And so I used all of that fuel of losing my father, 78 years old, to this unprecedented public health crisis. I saw the patients in our hospital. I saw nearly every bed filled in this hospital with a black or brown patient. Um, I knew what happened more broadly in Newark. I knew that uh, black and brown folks were anywhere from three to four times higher hospitalization rates, anywhere from two to 2.4 in late recent research has come out 3.3 times higher mortality rates for Native American and indigenous groups. I knew all of that, but I had a personal reason as well. And being 
being a public health physician, believing in the public health science, I wanted to fuel all of that into a way to pay it forward. So I volunteered um, and I did what any reasonable person would do if you're going to put your life forward to be, um, you know, to test something out. I did the homework. I researched what we knew about that time about the the, the vaccine. They had only done early phase trials, um, and there were no serious medical events that had happened. Um, I trusted the investigators. They allowed me to ask all the questions I wanted to. I knew that informed consent was being upheld, which is sacred. And I knew the historical legacy, right? I want to go flip back to a point that Dr. Wade made. I knew of how often white supremacy um, was, was, was using science um, to um, disproportionately rob and steal black and brown lives. So I needed as a black woman to show how science could be a tool of progress and prevention. So I enrolled um, and uh, I didn't know whether or not I had had the vaccine or the placebo or the decoy as Dr. Elna Hall had explained. Um, and I found out just a little bit after the new year because once healthcare workers as those priority uh, populations were uh, named and identified had the opportunity to be vaccinated, that opportunity was presented to me. But if I had already been vaccinated, I didn't need to, to take advantage of it. And so I found out that I had been vaccinated. And in this office that you see me sitting in, I had a private public moment. I called my assistant to come in and I screamed to heaven, look, daddy, I've become the data. Because my father used to always say to me, follow the data, follow the science. OK, black power and black excellence were hand in hand in my household. And to be able to say that I have participated in a national and international effort to beat back a pandemic that robbed my father's life, ultimately I lost two cousins to this pandemic. And my sister, who's a breast cancer survivor, is a COVID-19 long hauler. To be able to say that I was a part of that process, that getting at an answer is something that was a once in a lifetime moment and opportunity. And I was proud. And I hope that increasingly black and brown communities and groups will have the opportunity and the access to participate in clinical research. Because as Dr. Waite said, we saw higher levels than we had ever seen in the past, but we need to see more. You can get much more information on the vaccine Q&A discussion hosted by WBGO's Alexander Hill by going to wbgo.org news. New Jersey officials hope reforms they're pushing to change policing in the state will prevent a murder like George Floyd's from happening here. WBGO's Joe Hernandez reports a major pillar of the effort is the use of a new policy. The state is currently training officers on the new use of force policy, which takes effect next year. It's the first update in two decades, emphasizes de-escalation, and prevents officers from using deadly force except as a last resort. Attorney General Gerbeer Graywall says it also requires officers to intervene if they see a fellow officer using illegal or excessive force. So we don't have that video from Minneapolis happen in New Jersey where three cops stood by while a fourth killed somebody. In cases of police violence that go to trial, it would still be up to the jury to decide whether an officer followed the rules. I'm Joe Hernandez, WBGO News. We learned earlier this week that the verdict for former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was guilty on all three counts, second-degree murder and third-degree murder and manslaughter for pinning George Floyd's neck to the asphalt with his knee 
until Floyd stopped breathing. Emotions have been running high everywhere. Here in New Jersey, Bloomfield College President Dr. Marquita Evans sent out a campus-wide email the day after the verdict expressing her thoughts and letting students know there are counselors available to talk about the case. I spoke with Dr. Evans this week about her personal reaction to the verdict. You know, even as you're talking, I'm, I'm really trying to hold back tears. Um, you know, I grew up in Alabama doing the civil rights movement. And, uh, you know, being a black person, uh, went to the University of Alabama, you know, you know, historically what happened there is we're standing in the door, not letting any black students in, you know, as a student. And to know still here we are in 2021. Um, honestly, I was scared yesterday. I was scared because even though we had a video that showed a man being murdered and someone callously sitting there and people begging him to take his knee off of his neck, it still happened and he still died. And this is not something that's unusual as far as a black and brown community or those that are maybe don't have less resources, how they get treated, unfortunately. And the, you know, there are not, not every person in law enforcement is a bad egg, but it's bad enough though, that we know that these communities have been disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system. So even though we saw literally what was happening in real time as far as the video is concerned, and I thank God for the smartphones with that have that capacity, it was still that uncertainty that maybe he's not gonna be found guilty. And then if he's not found guilty, I felt as if all hell was gonna break loose because again, the world actually saw this, right? And saw how we've been treated as a people. And when I have to talk to my students on campus or talk to my grandsons or, or just even myself with all the privilege that I have being a college president, I still get anxious when a police officer pulls up. Is there gonna be something wrong? You know, my husband and I, we've been stopped for nothing, basically. Um, you know, I was worried. So, you know, I was anxious, my heart was racing, all those kinds of things. And then when I finally heard, because I actually was in a meeting until 5.30 yesterday, finally got out of the meeting and heard the verdict guilty on all three charges. One, I was shocked that it was guilty, 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 right? But then hearing it, I cried. I cried, you know? So, Just taking that moment. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, in, in your email that you sent to everyone today, you talked about how, you know, this is one part of uh, a long series of changes that need to be made, and students will have questions, and they'll need right. to find out how to deal with it. Uh, tell us about how Bloomfield College is moving from this point on now when it comes to, you know, sure. social justice matters. Definitely. So number one, you know, I'm encouraging and my background is counseling, and I'm right now needing myself, you know, just the emotional aspect of it, emotionally, spiritually. Um, you know, psychological piece of that and not being afraid to reach out and to get that help. So we have our personal counseling. Uh, we have employee assistance programs as well for faculty and staff, you know, the employees of the institution. Um, last year, I established a diversity, equity and inclusion committee. And we're literally in this very moment doing a survey of our whole community looking at how they feel on this campus. Uh, do they matter? Does their voice matter? Uh, how they're treated and respected as a part of the Bloomfield College community. So this uh, DEI task force will be coming up with recommendations 
uh, we'll be also reviewing the responses to see how we're doing well, things that we're not doing so well on, and what are our next steps. So even though we're a minority serving institution, we still need to pause and to look and to see how culturally competent we are. And so that's why, again, uh, we established this DEI task force. It includes students as well. You know, we've had our Black Lives Matter banner uh, that's hanging from the Student Center on Talbot Hall. Uh, that, again, is to demonstrate to the public overtly, this is who we are. We're a predominantly Black institution, and we're a Brown institution being a Hispanic-serving institution as well. We're speaking with Dr. Marquita Evans, the president of Bloomfield College. And I know that, you know, not all the students are on campus right now because of uh, COVID and the restrictions. But what conversation have you had since uh, we knew that the verdict was in around uh, 530 last night mm -hmm. that moved you the most yesterday or maybe this morning? You know, honestly, I've been in, of course, Zoom meetings all day and I haven't had a chance to get out and about to kind of talk with the students. But just seeing some of the chatter, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or, or Insta, as the students talk about it, uh, I know that our young people had such an impact by being out in the streets, the posters, their voices, uh, things we had on campus, whether it was in the spring or in the fall, uh, they were actively engaged. And if you look back at any of the social justice or civil rights movements, the youth that are leading. And it's just so wonderful to see because sometimes I think our youth get a bad rap in regards to them not being involved or not being engaged. And that is totally opposite from the truth. So, you know, our student government, they were very active in different programs that we offered on campus, uh, looking at a variety of different things related to equity. And uh, it's just wonderful to see, to be perfectly honest, uh, knowing again that if we let the system, this time the system works, but it's still systemic racism that occurs. And so our students are aware of that. And this is just, again, uh, a moment in time that we hope can, again, move us forward and propel us and to see that, okay, there is some semblance of, what is it, accountability I've been hearing over the last 24 hours, not really justice, because justice would be restorative of George not having died. Well, we can't get to that point, but now people are being held accountable for their actions, and maybe they'll think twice before doing, using deadly force. Accountability goes not only when it comes to law enforcement, but it comes to campus safety during Yes. Unprecedented times for you while you've been president, exactly. you know, COVID. So are you happy with the way Bloomfield College has handled the pandemic? Most definitely, you know, and I've said this before, our, our community has been disproportionately impacted by the virus death. You know, again, uh, you know, 42% of our students come from Essex County, mainly Newark. And we know, again, that the median family income for our students is $30,000. So the resources are very limited for the family. We've had you know, over 300 students that have been living on campus. We provided our students with the technology as well. Uh, most of our classes have been virtual. We've had some hybrid uh, with some of our labs. We've done some face-to-face, -face, but again, very, very limited. Uh, we try to work with our students in the whole community. I don't know if you remember, I did an op-ed in January, encouraging with other black presidents in New Jersey, encouraging people to get the vaccine. And I did have a very candid conversation with one of our student leaders on campus maybe about three weeks ago because now they've lowered the age uh, limit, I think down to 16 now, of them getting the vaccine, but it's still this fear. 
And then unfortunately, the thing that happened with J&J vaccine, you know, that's kind of in these communities of color that thinking, no, we're not trying to sterilize, you know, you will not grow a second head if you get the vaccine, you know, whatever. But you hear these myths and things that are happening. And as an institution of higher education, working with our students, working with our student leaders, uh, working with the community. Uh, there was one of our local churches that actually had some slots for our students to come to get the vaccine. And so they're really committed to us. And I'm so appreciative of them offering up those slots for our students. That age that they're at right now um, mm -hmm. is a very delicate age. I've heard so many people say, well, you know, I might not want to get the vaccine because of this. Uh, maybe I want to plan a family for, for the younger people. What do you say to, to college students who tell you, I just don't want it, Dr. Evans? You know, um, I'm, of course, encouraging them to, uh, helping them follow the science. You know, having a family has nothing to do with you getting a vaccine. Uh, follow the science uh, related to that and, and what the experts are saying and not what you're reading on some blog or whatever or, or TikTok. Uh, that's not what you should be doing. And it's for your safety, because we're also seeing that a lot of younger people, especially with these mutant uh, viruses that are out there, they're being impacted with what we call long haulers uh, symptoms as a result of this virus. It, it may not kill you, but it impacts your heart, it impacts your lungs, it, you know, all those kinds of things. So, you know, even if you get the vaccine, it doesn't mean that you won't get the virus, but at least it won't be as devastating on you physically if you do. So I am strongly encouraging them to do it. You know, I still have to encourage some members of my family to get it as well. And these are some of my people in my families that are educators. You know, it's like, really? That's what you think? No. You know, and you can't keep going back to the experiment that happened in Tuskegee. This is not what they're doing. This is a national issue that we're doing. And I love you. And I would like for you to be around a little bit longer. Would it be good? And would it be a fair policy to say, unless you are vaccinated, you can't come to class in the fall at Bloomfield College. So you're putting me on the spot because this literally is a conversation that we're having. And I keep getting emails from people about all the institutions now. I think this morning it was up to 50 institutions that are requiring their students to be vaccinated before they return. Um, I'm, you know, the, we have a COVID task force. They'll be coming up with recommendations. I'm a part of a statewide task force that, and as far as higher ed is concerned and restart. And we'll be talking about that later on today at one o'clock. Um, but what causes me to kind of be a little hesitant about doing it is knowing again that 83% of my students are students of color. And we still have this major hesitancy in the community to get the vaccination. And so requiring them to get it when they already have some barriers that are in place, even pursuing higher education, I don't want to do that right now, but we may end up doing it between now and August, uh, making that a requirement or how we set up people coming that make a choice of not getting vaccinated versus those that are vaccinated, uh, how they're housed and a variety of different things. So all of that is being explored, to be perfectly honest. Um, I cannot express, because I've been fully vaccinated, how liberating it is to get your shots. You know, doesn't mean you don't still have to wear your mask, because you do. Um, but again, once you get it, you feel as if, hopefully I won't die because the virus has been so random. Healthy people have died. 
people with all these health disparities have survived. You know, it's like no rhyme or reason. Your blood type, a variety of different things that are going on related to the virus. So, um, you know, as far as requiring it coming back in the fall, I'm going to leave it up to the task force and the experts and come up with a recommendation for me. And then uh, the voices of the collective will be heard. Voices from some of the students that uh, the classes that I teach at Bloomfield College online right now, uh, Mm -hmm. some simply say virtual learning is extremely difficult for them to a point where they almost want to, they want to give up. But um, I've also seen though, if you give them encouragement in some of the things they're doing, they hang in there with you. So what have you learned as an educator about how we've done remote learning, especially at the higher learning level? Has it worked? Can it be better? What are we doing next? Well, I will start with, can we do better? Most definitely. Um, you know, when we had to pivot back in last March to go virtual, that was not a true online learning environment, ex- you know, experience. Uh, very few of our faculty had ever taught online. And, you know, teaching online is not the same way you teach in person. Uh, some of the things that some faculty weren't even used to the technology or how to use the technology. So we went through, we made it through, you know, spring semester as best as we could uh, with all the support that we could get related to uh, how you would stand up your class in an online platform or, or an LMS. Then we did some extensive training for our faculty that was required of every single faculty member during the summer. And again, we got our classes online and being ready to pivot if we needed to, that if we went to face-to-face or we did hybrid, they were good to go. They had a shell and everything moved forward. Um, you know, some of the good things we've learned from this is that sometimes some things virtually or using the technology works really well. But our students, I think, come to Bloomfield because they want that one-to-one face-to-face experience. They could go to Rutgers that has 50 to 60,000 students or Montclair that has 30,000 students or whatever, but they come to Bloomfield that has a little under 1,600 students because they want that connection, that family feel. And we've got to get our students back on campus. Uh, When, you know, 52% of our students are first generation, sometimes they don't know how to navigate. So when you were talking about your students in the class, of them getting discouraged, sometimes we can see that on their faces or sometimes we can have it in our conversation and that's why they need to be here on campus with us. Always a pleasure to have you on the WBGO Journal and continued success. Thank you, thank you. You can see the entire interview with Bloomfield College President Dr. Marquita Evans on the WBGO Facebook page. If you love movies, tomorrow night's your night. This Sunday night is the 93rd Academy Awards for 2020. WBGO's film critic Harlan Jacobson tells us about some of the tighter races. Let's just spend a few moments in the two top acting categories where I might point out that five of the ten nominees are Brits. They know us all too well. The best actress category is alive with parts about women who've gone rogue in the male world that they throw off. The films nominated for these truly wonderful female performances in 2020 made different use of period and storytelling genre to capture women now. I love them all in this category. Viola Davis showing everyone who's boss in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Daddy, daddy, please come home to me. I'm on my way 
Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman about the loss of a child in childbirth that sets off a complex embrace of sisterhood with the midwife Molly Parker, class discomfort with husband Shia LaBeouf, and psychological matricide with Ellen Burstyn in yet another thankless role as a monster. She has to pay for her incompetence. Is this about money? No. Is it, is it about what, what people think? It's about you. It's about you having to face this. I am facing this. I am facing it! I am facing this! Well, I don't think you are. We need... We need some justice here. No, you need. That is what you want. That is what you need. That is... That is your way. That is not my way. That is what you need! Martha, if you had done it my way, you'd be holding your baby in your arms right now. You couldn't take your eyes off Andra Day as Billie Holiday in her first performance on film in Lee Daniels' The U.S. versus Billie Holiday. It's Lee's usual big reach to make a point, and the title summarizes that Lee's concerns were larger than the character portrait itself. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees You think I'm gonna stop singing that song? You grandkids will be singing strange fruit. Brit actress Carrie Mulligan is nominated for her role as the female truth-teller Cassandra in Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman. Mulligan simply immolates the screen as an avenging angel in a film that is the menacing granddaughter of all the Brian De Palma social horror films of the 70s and 80s. I think you should go. But a second ago, you were determined for me to stay. You were pretty insistent, actually. Well, I'm a nice guy. Are you? I thought we had a connection, I guess. A connection? Okay. What do I do for a living? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. How old am I? How long have I lived in the city? What are my hobbies? What's my name? And finally... Nominated for her role in Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, a Trump-era tour of American depression, Frances McDormand is a middle-class refugee and widow who cuts her ties to everything that's rooted, house, family, expectations. Cohn brother stalwart McDormand has made a career out of giving meta-performances, ones that comment satirically on her characters. But here, she's given the rare for her raw, in-the-moment performance of a lifetime. You're looking about $5,000 at the most. I'd probably recommend um, taking that money and putting it towards a different vehicle. No, no, well, I can't do that. I can't do that, see, because... All right. Um, I uh, I spent a lot of time and money building the inside out, and um, a lot of people don't understand the value of that, but um, it's not something like we can... I live in there. It's my home. I don't know how the Academy doesn't choose her. 
I don't know how it doesn't choose the others, though their films are not all equal. I don't know how the Academy just doesn't choose them all. For Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins hits it on the nose as a man sliding into oblivion in The Father. It's also the dominant theme coursing through the male cultural bloodstream, the ground continuing to shift under the feet of men. The sleeper male performance of the year is Pakistani Brit Riz Ahmed's rock drummer, who stops hearing the music that's his ticket in The Sound of Metal. Nelson Algren, who wrote The Man with the Golden Arm, which got an Oscar nomination for Frank Sinatra in 1956, once advised never eat at a place called Mom's, never play cards with a guy named Doc, and don't sleep with anyone sicker than you. He could have added, and there's no percentage in predicting the Oscars. And I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 6.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Portraits in Blue is up next on WBGO and WBGO.org.